going to uh, continue our study of uh, 1 Corinthians today, and we're going to be in studying the 13th chapter, and it, it's actually kind of um, daunting for me to tell you that we're going to, I'm going to preach a sermon that's going to cover the entire 13th chapter in just the next, you know, 45 minutes. <laughs> uh, it's, there's so much. Um, there's a reason why this is kind of an iconic uh, uh, you know, set of when I say First Corinthians thirteen, what's the first thing you think of? And, and where do we usually hear about First Corinthians thirteen? Right. It'd be it'd be like this morning. Like if I came and said, "He's risen." Yeah, but first you might have to click in there for a second because hey, it's not April. What are you doing in July saying he's risen? What do you mean, right? Or or uh, you know, and an angel appeared to the shepherds at night. Wait a minute, that's a December verse. So we, we don't get to preach 1 Corinthians 13 from the pulpit on a regular July Sunday, do we? Unless it's a wedding. Today I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you a bunch of things. And if you walk away with one thing out of all I have to tell you, then I'll be pleased. I'll be happy. And I think the Lord will be too. Because as a preacher, I get the, the pleasure. The, the, I get to just steep in this. I get to live in this passage of Scripture, and it really gets into me. But I know you come once a week. And, and so I'm hoping you're going to grab one thing out of all these things. But here's the first thing I want to tell you. Pa- chapters 12, 13, and 14 are all about spiritual gifts. This isn't like a sandwich. This isn't like, hey, chapter 12 is all about spiritual gifts, and so will 14. And I can't wait because that's going to be all about prophecy and, and seeing the Lord fall. But 13, okay, well, yeah, love, it's good, yeah. It's not like that. And that's why the name of the sermon today is A Still More Excellent Way. This is actually the, the primary chapter. 12 and 14 are kind of the, if this is really a sandwich, they're like the hoagie, all the stuffings. There's so much in there. It's not just a one slice of meat inside the really good stuff, which is the, the homemade bread. The bread's there, and then this is stacked. Chapter 13 is just stacked with all the good stuff of God. Right? So that's, so that's what we're going to have today. We're going we're gonna to be all filled up with all this good stuff that's in chapter 13. This most excellent way. 12 was about the diversity and the purpose of gifts, the beauty of unity, and, and how we are the body of Christ. And if we have unity and love in the body, then the gifts can be useful. 14 is going to be about applying some specific gifts in the church to build us. They're going to be about how we can together glorify God using these specific powerful gifts. 13 is about the greatest gift, the essential gift, that without this gift, of love. The rest of it's just worthless. Let's pray for a second. Heavenly Father, today we open your word and I pray by your spirit you would shine a bright light on that which you want us to take in, that which you want us to understand afresh and anew, what you want to renew in our minds that we've known before, but show us how to live and love in the way that you have called us to live and love. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's faithfulness in presenting it to us. And we pray that we would receive it by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually kind of deconstruct this chapter today. I'm not going to take it verse by verse from 1 to 13. I'm going to start with the end in mind and, and use that as a foundation to kind of build back what Paul's saying. So, so basically, I'm going to begin with a little brief primer on what faith, hope, and love are, which is the 13th verse is all about that. But I want you to take note, even as we're doing that, Paul is not being cranky right now. Okay, we've, we've preached this to you already a number of times. Paul's giving correction. Paul's pointing the finger. You know, you got to get this right. How could you dare ask that? This is, a, this is what all the first 12 chapters has been like, but this is not what Paul is like now. This is a turning point in Paul's teaching. This is a turning point in this letter where the tenderness of Paul is going to come out, where, the, where the, the loving graces of God through Paul are going to come forward. So this isn't a harsh word. But it's still just as strong, just as encouraging, just as valuable and important. And here in a nutshell, here's the three things Paul's going to tell us in a nutshell. This is how to love. This is why to love. This is love. That's what the whole chapter is all about. So let's look at chapter, at verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these three is love. In the dictionary, in the Merriam-Webster dictionary, The concept of faith is presented like this. It says, it's a firm belief in something for which there is no proof. 
That's what the world's current... Now, I think Daniel Webster would probably roll over in his grave if he heard that that's what the dictionary was today. Because Daniel Webster was a very strong Christian who wrote the first dictionaries in America in order to educate people about Christ. That's what the Webster's original dictionary is all about. But in the Old Testament, I'm going to tell you this. The Old Testament, the word behind faith really has this meaning of firmness, steadfastness, and fidelity, meaning there's a long-lasting component to it. Faith in the Old Testament means that you can be clear and confident of what you believe, and it's long-lasting. It's not fleeting. In the New Testament, there's a word pistis that is for faith, and it means to have belief and trust and confidence and also fidelity. It's used over 200 times. It's, it's constantly there. Faith is, is so much a part of what it means to follow Christ. Hebrews 11.1 1 gives us a key verse in the, that relates to this 1 Corinthians 13. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what faith is. The assurance of what's hoped for and the conviction of what's not seen. Conviction meaning when that gavel comes down in the courtroom and there's a conviction, and the sentence is passed, that's final. And you can count on it. That's going to happen. You're going to go right now from that courtroom to wherever you've been sentenced to. That's what conviction is. Like there's no questioning anymore. Christians, for us to have faith, to have faith in God, it means that we are confident in our believing in him. We're confident. We don't have the doubts. And we're assured and convinced that he exists, even though we can't visually see him. We know that he's there. You see, the thing is, the world's version of saying is like blind faith. I believe in that thing. Like right now, there's a big, heavy movement going on in this old, old philosophy that the world has been throwing at us for thousands of years called existentialism. If I don't see it, does it really exist? I I know that happened, but you can't convince me because I never saw what you're talking about. I had to see it with my own eyes. That's called blind faith. They think we have it. They think you just, oh, you've never seen it, so you can't prove it to me by your own. Well, any good detective would tell you that eyewitnesses are the worst kind that go in, right? DNA evidence has changed everything about criminal investigations because it's, in, it's for sure. We can identify who that person is for sure. Whereas two or three of us could see the same thing happen and even describe the perpetrator in very different ways. So blind faith is what the world thinks faith is all about. But God does not want us to have blind faith. God states in Romans 1.20 that he has left us enough evidence to enable us to believe in him confidently and we are without excuse. He has put in front of us enough evidence and we're without excuse. God wants us to be confident of that evidence that he's given. 1 Peter 3.15 says we should be ready to defend our faith. If I don't have it, how do I get ready to defend it? If I haven't explored and identified why it is I have faith, if there isn't something, well, what does he say? Give a reason for the hope that is in you. Be ready to defend it. Give a reason what's inside of you. So what's the inside of us? What's the evidence? What, what is it? How, what, how can I tell you that I have faith for sure? I am a different person than I was before God. I don't look at much different. Well, I have more gray hairs. <laughs> I used to have red hairs and blonde hairs. And, you know, inside I'm different. And some of you who, well, none of you knew me then. Okay. Some of those people, they, would, they have seen me change. Some have, have, have rejected me for it. Many, many rejected me early on for it. They saw the change immediately. That actually validated in me my faith. <laughs> imagine the people, my, my best friends, you know, and I love them. And I was involved in some really, really weird, crazy stuff. As soon as I got saved, born again, and believing in Jesus for my salvation, they saw the difference and they started to reject me. And all I surmised that was, it's different between last week and this week is Jesus. They must be rejecting Jesus. Hey, it's real, <laughs> you know, because there's still those moments of like, what's going on? And I, I don't, I, but hey, this is, a, I got confirmation from my unsaved friends that I'm born again. 
If only they knew. Someday, I wish I could have tell them that someday. Let me give, I know we're, I'm dealing with a, a good crowd of people that understand the Bible pretty well. Let me give you seven things, just seven. There's a lot more, but just seven things from the Bible. I'm going to go through them quickly that, that give you attributes of biblical faith. The first one is faith is a gift from God. The second, I'm going so fast, you might not be able to write this down. Write the seventh one down, okay? Write the seventh one. First one, faith is a gift from God. Secondly, faith in God comes first, and, and without it, we cannot please him. Third, faith is priceless, and it will be tested and refined through trials. Our faith will be refined and improved, and it becomes even more priceless. Fourth, faith comes through the word of God. Number five, our good deeds provide evidence of our faith. Faith without is dead. So if I just say I have faith, but I don't show it. Okay, number six, faith will produce miracles. And number seven, you can write this one down. Faith is a lifestyle. Romans 1.17, faith is a lifestyle. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's a lifestyle. It's not just a way of seeing the world. It's a way of being in the world. It's a way of impacting the world. It's a way that the world sees Christ, even if they choose to reject it, as my friends did, they still see it because of the way we live. Let's go on. Again, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of this is love. So hope is a beautiful word, and it's used all over the world these days. Uh, don't put that one up yet, Cream. Uh, That's coming in a minute. Um, the dictionary, again, we go back to our dictionary and get our contrasting thing. The dic Webster's Dictionary, Merriam-Webster says, to cherish a desire with anticipation, to want something to happen or to be true, to want something to happen, to be wishing for something to happen. To, to take the, in the old days, we'd take the big old thick Sears catalog and circle everything we were hoping to get at Christmas time. Turn the pages, right? And then for a while, the Sears started stopped publishing, but Fred Myers would put a pretty good Christmas catalog out, you know. Now we just build Amazon gift lists and send them out to everybody. We still do the same thing. I want that. This is what I'm hoping somehow to have, something, right? The weird thing about this is, this definition of hope is actually built on doubt and uncertainty. You're not, you don't have any thought about what's really going to happen out there. And so let me just pick 100 things that might be good, and if I get any of them, I'll be happy. That's what the world's version of hope is. But that's not God's version of hope. Of course, we get our contrast, right? Biblical hope it's not wishful thinking, it's confidence, again, that confidence and it's expectation. Hope in the Old Testament means to wait for something with expectation and anticipation that it will happen and it is often accompanied by joy and pleasure and always related to God. Well, the contrast would be, what do you put your hope in? And when we read it in Psalms and Proverbs, you see how the wise put their hope in God and the foolish don't. He, God doesn't mince words, he just, you know, Get on one side or the other. Hope in the New Testament is that reasonable expectation, always looking towards the future with assurance, always to the future. And in the New Testament, it's always accompanied again by joy and pleasure, by peace, and it's related to Jesus. Hope is always connected to our Lord, true hope. It's not doubt. Again, Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us again, faith is a substance of things hoped for. We can't have one without the other. Give us that, that quote, Cream. This is, there's a website that I often go to just for quick answers or it's insightful commentary. It's one of the commentary pages that I like to read, gotquestions.org. It's a play on the whole got milk thing. And I think the guy started it as a lark like 10 years ago. And now it's just filled with all kinds of great commentary. And uh, so here's what he says. Faith and hope are complementary. Faith is grounded in the reality of the past, the reality of the past. Hope is looking to the reality of the future. Without faith, no hope, and without hope, there's no true faith. 
the reality of life. How do we really see life? What's really going to happen? So here's, a, here's seven attributes from the Bible about hope. Write down number seven when we get there. Number one, hope is always in the future and never really seen. Number two, perseverance in our suffering increases our hope. When we're struggling with something and we persevere, our hope grows stronger. We see the potential of, yes, it's going to be what God said. Number three, hope brings joy and peace. Number four, Christ is our living hope. It says that in Titus 2, we are waiting in this life, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Number five, we have a hope for a resurrection. You know, we don't, you don't, we don't get preached on, preach that too much about the resurrection. But without the resurrection, our faith just kind of crumbles. It's a cornerstone. If, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then Paul even said, if that didn't happen, then everything I believe is worthless. So we have a hope for our own resurrection along with him. We have a hope for that. Number six, without Christ, there is no hope. And number seven, oh, let me say this about number six. Without Christ, there's no hope. If biblical hope is waiting for a future event with some confident expectation, and if you can continue to believe that the word of God is the only sure thing that will exist throughout all time, because the word itself tells us everything else will be put away with but the word of God. So if biblical hope is waiting for a future event with confident expectation and the word of God is the only sure thing in all of creation, we must have God in order to have hope, which is, means that people that do not have Christ cannot, they're not able to actually have hope in this life or the next. It's stark. It's bigger than just, well, you've got to get some more hope. You, you got, you'll have very little. They cannot have any hope without God. It's not, don't take a partial, like, oh, they're so happy. They're, they, that's the most positive person I know. They're always skipping, and it's all, everything life seems to fall good for them. How do they always make? Without Jesus, there really is no hope, not really. This is the gospel. That's the bad news side of it. You need Jesus. But if we don't present this level of truth to the people we're witnessing to, if we don't present it to ourselves, if we don't really grab hold of without God, our hopes are nothing, then we won't really grab hold of God. We'll always say, I got this other way out. I got, I'm going to shoot the list out anyways and hope for all that. Oh yeah, and God too. And that's not how it works. That's number six. Number seven, hope makes us bold. Hebrews 6.19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our souls, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtains. And then 2 Corinthians 3.12 says, since we have such a hope, the one that anchors our souls and we can get behind the curtain, since we have that, we are very bold. So faith is a lifestyle and hope makes us bold. Back to verse 13. This is just the introduction, by the way, so... We're getting there. Faith, hope, and love, they're going to abide. They're going to endure. These things, the greatest of them is love. This is the love chapter. So here's Paul coming back around to this. And again, in our day and age, love is so misapplied in so many different ways. We don't have time to go through all of them. We've all done it. <laughs> We're all guilty of misusing the word and the concept of what love really is. It's not just our emotions or our feelings. It's actions baked, based on choices. It might involve our emotions, but actions always follow. It's like faith without works, emotional love without acting upon that. It, what good is that? That's basically the message of this chapter. Like if you have love, but you don't express it, if you, if you don't actually put that love into action, then what's the point of all the spiritual gifts? That's the essence of what Paul's getting at here. So I hate to break it to you, although it's okay, but I hate to break it to you, it's not a wedding chapter. It's good to use at weddings, as are a lot of other verses, 
It's good to apply the biblical truths of love to the commitments being made to each other at our weddings or our anniversaries, rededications. You know, when we go to a wedding together and this, the songs are being sung and then they start saying this, Terry and I scoot a little closer together and we hold hands. And we're like, yeah, it's still true. We love this. We love each other. Yeah, it's a rededication. It's good to do that. But Paul's not talking about weddings. Let's talk a little bit about love. In, in Greek, well, I should say in Hebrew first, the essence of loving is to give. The underlying meaning of both the verb and the noun, love, in the, in the Hebrew is about giving. It's giving to the others and without benefit of return. In the Greek, we get four words for it. Eros is romantic or sexual love. God created it, and it's a good thing. Storge is familial love. This is the kind of love that parents and children, aunts and uncles, it's what we have for each other. It kind of comes automatically with the package. And it's like, like we always told our kids, there's nothing you can do to break our love. There's not a single thing you can do. They've tried. <laughs> Lord knows they've tried, right? So did I, right? So did I. So did I try, right? But a, a week ago, my soon-to-be 98-year-old mom was just reminding me of what it's like to be a parent whose kids have all grown and left home. My mom still loves me, still loving me, and still giving me wisdom and advice, and, but just in such kind, tender ways. Not, not, you know, well, about time you learned that, you know, just loving me. There's nothing I could do, and, then, and she taught me that. Filio is brotherly love. And I think most of the time in churches, this is what we see happening. Most of the time we see this filial love. It's affectionate friendship. It's cherishing and regarding each other. It's, it's, uh, str the Strong's Concordance gives us a, a look behind the word, and it says, to show warm affection in an intimate friendship, and it's characterized by tender, heartfelt consideration and kinship. So it's like we're walking together through this journey. I'm in there with you. We're, we're going we're gonna to make it. I'll pick you up when you need. But filio, in most of, for most of us, is this gathering and then some of the extra special events. But God really uses, for the most part, agape love. You've all heard these phrases before. Agape is the kind of love that he's talking about here in this chapter. Agape is the kind of love that we get in, in John 15, 13, where he says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for his friends. Agape love is used the most times. It's, it's really talking about the love from God, the love of God from God to us and should be through us to others. This is the pick up your cross and follow. Endure the suffering so your faith can be made stronger. This is what real love, well, the others are real also. This is what God's, the depths of God's love is really about. It's sacrificial. It's choosing. Remember, love is actions based on choices because it's, it's kind of cool to hang out together and my choice to come today was, was my choice, but I could still avoid certain people if I wanted to. And I'll go find my best friends, you know, who are the coolest to be filio with, right? But agape love would say, oh, I see that person sitting over there. They look sad. They're alone. I don't really care for them. They smell bad, but I'll go sit with them. I'll find out what's going on. Agape goes a little, makes a choice to go a little further, maybe a lot further. Maybe doing something for their well-being that might cost you something. It's serving others and no expectation in return. Now, we've heard that scriptures in Hebrews where it says faith and hope, they go together, right? Here's the thing between faith, hope, and love. Faith and hope are all about what's going on inside of me. It's so that I can feel confident of and continue my walking with and trusting God and making it through this life. Love is what I give out. It's, it's given to me for the benefit of others. Faith and hope are given to strengthen me. That being said, my faith can strengthen you. My hope can encourage you, without question. And, and even we have some really wonderful uh, scenes in the Bible. Think of the guy who couldn't make it to the gathering at the house and his friends came and picked him up and carried him on the stretcher, climbed up on the roof, opened a hole and lowered him down. And Jesus said, your friend's faith is what got you here. Get up and, you know, he healed them, right? So our faith can carry each other along. 
But as soon as they went to his house, as soon as they got him on the stretcher and walked him down the street and climbed, they were showing love. Their faith, they made a decision based on their faith to put love into action. And it was the actions that they took that was loving. They were sacrificing their own chances. They were maybe sacrificing their reputations. They could have fallen through and died. I don't know. I mean, but their faith in action produced the love. So, okay, seven. Well, we're on the perfect list of sevens today. Seven attributes of love. Write down the, the last one. First, there's, there's more than seven in the Bible, by the way. There's more than seven of all these in the Bible. I had to limit my notes, right? Otherwise, I'd be here a long, long time. Love is from God. That's number one. Number two, love covers every sin. Number three, love fulfills the law. Number four, the most important commandment is to love. Number five, loving others shows that we are Christians. Number six, we are to love with our actions. That is putting it into word, 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 ah, actions. And number seven, going along with our lifestyle and our boldness, our lifestyle of faith, our, our boldness because of hope, Love eclipses fear. There's no fear in love, it says in 1 John 4.18. No fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So, if I have a lifestyle of faith, and I am emboldened because of the hope that I confidently hold on to, and because of love, I can now be fearless, that's what Paul is telling us. That's who we are. That's who they are. It's not, it's not simply, you've got spiritual gifts, you're going to be a cool church, everybody's going to come, it's going to be great. No, you're going to be living a lifestyle. Righteousness is going to be coming out of you. You're going to be bold in that. You're not going to shirk away, and you're not going to be afraid of what others might say. You're not going to fear what the, the world that could hurt your flesh you're going to fear God who holds your, your immortal soul in his very hand. And because of that, because of his love, we don't have to be afraid to be fearless. And love, by the way, these all come together, but, and they will abide, which means they will endure, they will last forever. But love is the greatest. Why is that? Love is the fuel. Love is the essence. Love... God is love. So that's what fuels everything else. Like without that, the rest of it, as he even says, but it will endure. So let's look at verse eight. As long as we're going, we're going to go backwards through this chapter today. So here we go, eight, verses eight through 12. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. But we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes... The partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. I want to add in there, I prayed like a child, with a faith like a child. I want to reclaim some of that. But he goes on, he says, when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways, but not my childish faith. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So Paul clearly drawing a line between now and then. Now and then. And, and as long as you continue to live like now is all there is, then won't make any sense to you. And you won't actually change anything. You won't actually try to help, hold on, exercise your faith, hold on to the hope, and be loving. You just get, Now says, take care of your own. Take care of yourself. Do what's best for you. Paul says, I've grown up out of that. He doesn't say, I got it instantly, by the way. Most of us didn't. Most of us had a couple do-overs along the way, and I, ooh, I never saw that coming. Oh, well, I really blew that one. But as I've grown, I'm giving up the childish ways of thinking. Paul's showing us now and then, temporary and eternal, and he's prodding us to focus on then. But I want to encourage you, don't let go of what you have, what you've done so far. It, it'd be so easy for you to stop and say, I'll never attain that. So here I am, I, oh, I, I'll just wait. Don't, don't give up. 
You've, you've come this far. And Christ isn't done. He who began a good work in you is faithful. He will complete it in the day of the return of the Lord. He's faithful to complete the work he started in you. And so, which means he's not done. So why should you be done? So in the, in the very famous words of, I don't remember which preacher, carry on. Carry on, right? Get up and carry on. Let's back it up a little bit further. Verses one through three. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to even move mountains, but I have not love, then I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So here he's describing actually somebody whose faith is strong, whose hope is strong. They, they've got the part of the elements, and they've even exercising the gifts that they've received that they acknowledge that they have. Maybe someone else said, well, when you talk, that's really prophetic. And so they keep doing it because they encourage each other. But he's saying, if I don't have love, if I don't have the essence, if I don't really have connection to God, if I'm not really there, he's not, not really where my hope and faith are from, but I'm just going through what, what looks good because, you know, we're all hanging together and it's good, then I'm nothing. So Paul has this agape love in his mind when he says it. Even though it's not until later that he finally says, this is the most eternal thing. He's, saying, he's already got it in mind when he's saying it here. And he's giving us his perspective on the spiritual gifts. He's talking about why we have them, how to use them. That's what he's saying. Like, like you got to get this part straight. All this other stuff that's just sort of like, it's a, like the church annual meeting. And to this year, we're going to hand out gifts. And so A through L, you're going to get this gift. And M, M and K are going to get this one. You know, God is sovereign. He hands them out the way he wants to. But if all we do is an inventory of them, and we don't connect to God, and we don't have the love of God, then our efforts are going to be worthless. And I would dare say that our efforts might actually be worth, worse than worthless. They might actually become a distraction. They might actually point ourselves and other people away from God and towards the gifts or towards the results of me exercising my gifts. And there are multiple stories in the Bible of people who did that and didn't turn out so good, including the ones that came to Jesus on the last day and said, didn't we prophesy and, and do miracles in your name? And he said, I don't know, I don't know who you are. Don't be there. Know God. The rest will take care of itself. Paul, Paul is going on to say, you, you, we're supposed to be doing this because we're members of the body of Christ. In order to get that part of it, we have to back up even further. And I thank Larry very much for leaving me the last few verses of chapter 12. Because that's actually the introduction to the sermon. So I thank you for doing that for me. So let's back up into, into chapter 12 and look at the last few verses, the last four verses of chapter 12, where it talks about what it means to be the body of Christ. Verse 27 of 12 says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We're the body of Christ. So you go, yeah, I got it. I knew that. I knew what that is. Yeah, okay. Let me nuance it for you a little bit more, what it means to actually be the body of Christ. And by the way, even though he says this phrase, and individually members of it, he's not repeating himself when he says, you're the body of Christ. He's saying, all y'all, from my southern friends, all y'all, because y'all could just be in my friend, right? But all y'all are the body of Christ. Everybody here and everybody's watching and everybody who's a part of who we are, we're all the body of Christ. And you're each individually members. That's why it has to say two phrases. Okay, listen to what it says in Ephesians 1. This is where we first kind of get this introduction from Paul about what the body of Christ is. I'm going to start with the 20th verse. And there's a little bit of this he and he and him and him. I'll, try, I'll add in which one's God and which one's Jesus so you can kind of keep, keep the players with a scorecard. He, God, worked in Christ when he, God, raised him, Christ, from the dead and seated Christ at his right hand in heavenly places. God raised Christ, put him up at his right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So you understand the position of Christ? God himself put Christ the Son above everything. And God put all things under the feet of Christ and gave Christ to the church. Now I took a phrase out. 
because I don't want to confuse you. I'm going to add it back in in a second. And in fact, I'll read it different. God put all things under the feet of Christ and gave Christ as the head over all things to the church. You got to make sure the punctuation is in there. Do you follow what I'm saying when you parse it out this way? He didn't just make him, he didn't say, okay, your next assignment, Jesus, is you're going to be the head of the church. Oh, dad, do I have to? I was down there once already. No, he's the head of all things. And so therefore we, for as his body, we have the head of all things as our head. That's this, like the big kahuna. Right? We got a straight shot to the CEO's office, right? We all got red phones. We're, <laughs> we are connected to the top. There's nobody. It, that's it. We're the body of Christ is not a small thing. We know, you know, we lean into Ephesians 4 all the time here. I'm not going to read it to you, but it talks about the reason why the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers were given for the building up of the saints to equip them for service so that the body would grow, so the body would get stronger, so that there would be love going out into the world, not just among us, that's first, but eventually out into the world. That's why. That's why that verse is a significant one to us. Ephesians 4, Acts 2 and Ephesians 4 is so significant because that's what we're striving to do and be. But it's talking about gifts of the Spirit as well. Those were the gifts that Jesus gave to the church for building it up so that the body could be strong and effective. So what else does Paul say about the body of, of Christ, about the church? In verse, 13, uh, verse 28, um, chapter 12, he says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. So this is a slightly different list than what he's given before, but yet no, not insignificant at all. God put people into places in churches and then gave them specific gifts so that the church will be strong and healthy and effective. God's very intentional and sovereign. He's very intentional in his assignment. And Paul goes on to clarify this because he doesn't want them to be confused. And in verse 29, he says, are all apostles? Is everybody here an apostle? Is everyone a prophet? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? And he's saying, I think, nuancing in this, underneath some of this is, don't be jealous for what the other person has. Don't compare yourself. We can't all, if we were all this, it'd be so chaotic and boring at the same time. If we all had the same, if we're all healers and we're all just walking around healing each other, it'd just be nuts all the time. And then after we're all healed, then what? Where do we go then, right? But, but Paul's laying it out saying rhetorically, don't get hung up on what gift got given to whom. God is sovereign. He wants it the way he wants it. We together are the body of Christ. And in unity, which is what we heard about last week, we do what. Jesus says, as he says it, like in the way he wants it done. And if we're really, really paying attention, if we really are, we do, when, we do it when he says, because he says. We do what he says, how he says, when he says, because he says. And each one of us has an important part in the health and well-being of our body. So, that's been preached now to you probably three or four times here already in the last few weeks. So let's go on to verse 12, chapter 12, verse 31, which Paul gives two incredibly significant statements. The first one is, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now remembering that Paul is talking to the entire church, and remembering that all gifts given to the church, given to the body of Christ, are sovereignly given by God. So Paul's emphasis here on desiring, earnestly desiring the higher gifts is not simply that each one of us would, God, please use me and give me gifts. And, I, and oh, oh, I should have the higher gifts. God, give me the higher gifts. I, you know, I'll pray double. It's not that at all. It's that the church together should have a very sincere desire to see all of God's given gifts being used to their fullest. Earnestly desiring. And Paul lists these specific gifts, I think, for a reason. These are the gifts that within an organization of any kind, 
You change the meaning to a secular meaning, but they have the same kind of content for it. These are the gifts, especially in the church, they bring vision. They bring direction and instruction. They bring guidance and order. They bring order. The administrators bring order to the things. They bring correction and comfort. Remember the 23rd Psalm? Thy rod and thy staff. Ooh, that sounds pretty bad. They comfort me. Oh, maybe I should, maybe I should go get some correction because I was going off the path. They bring healing. These, these gifts bring healing, and they bring confidence in, law, in God's love. So Paul's saying we should earnestly desire these. Now, he's saying it to the whole church, meaning we as a church should earnestly desire that all these gifts are present and operating in our church as much as needed. He's also, by implication, saying, don't start looking around for why that person isn't doing what God's asking them to do. Like, like didn't I see? Don't you, Nancy, aren't you a healer? Why aren't you healing today? Come on. David, I haven't heard you prophesy in quite some time, and I don't know what, you know, what kind of church is this, Pastor? You know, the gifts are... No, he's saying, each of you, all of you together, pray that God would release that. And he's saying, each of us be open to God releasing it in me. We're each individually members of the body of Christ, therefore we have a part, and it might not be the one that you signed up for, but God is sovereign. God might just say, yeah, it's your turn today. Biggest fear most people have, except for spiders, the biggest fear most people have is speaking in public. We see it sometimes in the prayer meetings. That's why we started small prayer meetings, because if there's only two or three people, you can kind of whisper and still be heard. But when we get the bigger prayer meetings, you're all getting there. Some of you are still like, I don't know, it's praying out loud thing. Right? It's hard, right? But if we're going to have a lifestyle of faith and a hope that brings boldness and we're not going to be afraid, then what's stopping you? From working it out, from getting out there, from saying what needs to be said, from doing what needs to be done. So we, if we earnestly desire these things, we're going to have a healthy church. I, I'm going to give you three words that I think a healthy church would characterize a healthy church. The word, a healthy church has the word, and we try our best here to be expository in the word and to really dig down deep and to pull out the best we can how to understand God's word and live according to it. A healthy church has got the word. It's based on it. It's got worship, which is focused on God and more on God's attributes and love than, than on what God has done, although that's, that's part of how I connect that. I understand this is what, how what love looks like because I know what he did for me and in me but we're, we have the word and we have worship and we have wonder. When, when God's power is displayed, there's a delightful surprise. There's a, wah! There's not like a, there's not a, I don't believe it. I've heard that. I actually was on mission one time in Mexico when a guy was praying. He was praying for a, a child to get healed and, he, and the child did get healed and someone next to him goes, I don't believe it. And the kid was, had his affliction back. We had to pray again. I mean, it's kind of a weird way to, to think of that. Like, why would God do that? But he did it to make us a lesson for all of us. Like someone literally declared, I don't believe it. Now, maybe the words were wrong and maybe inside, but that, that's a lesson learned. And, and I want to get to where it's like delightful surprise. It's like, praise the Lord that I don't put my unbelief on the table first as some kind of a false expression of I love, I love God's work. Delightful. So wonder. So word, worship, and wonder. And we, and we should not wonder about God doing wonderful things. If anything, we should be wondering why he's not. And then maybe take a look in the mirror and say, well, what, what's my part in trying to figure out how to have more wonder in the church? We've been talking about spiritual gifts for the last few weeks. You'll get some more of it next week. I used to teach classes on spiritual gifts, so I repent of that. And, um, but I do have for you a spiritual gifts test that you can take right now right now in your own brain, it's three questions. And the first two are actually quite similar. So if you only do, if you skip one of the first two, you're still good to go. And so this starts with the assumption that because I love God and I love others as I love myself, if you, if you apply that to your own life, then question number one is, what can I do and how can I be so that God receives glory and the body of Christ is built up? You have to fill in the answers on that. What can I do and how can I be so that God is glorified and the Christ body is built up? Question two, am I willing and available to be used by God anywhere and any way he desires? 
And then question three is, when and how do I impact others? Like, is it visible or do I hear back reports? Get answers to those three things. Do what God says. Your spiritual gift will become obvious. Be available. Take direction. <laughs> go. <laughs> your spiritual gifts will come out. You don't have to go looking for them. Everybody will go, wow, that was so prophetic. Wow, your, your wisdom is so engaging. The way you organize and, and do things, the way you have such empathy and mercy and grace for me, you'll see it in the lives of others and in your own life as it starts to happen. That's your, that's your spiritual gifts test. Okay, the second half of verse 31 is, I will show you a still more excellent way. This is, I think this in this letter that Paul wrote, this is what I would call his pivot point. He got all the way through the 12 chapters and he was bringing all this instruction and correction and answering questions and getting him back on the right path and getting him to stop believing all the weird stuff. And, get and then he says, I'm going to show you a still more excellent way. Do you know what he's saying? Everything I've already shown you is excellent. It's really, really good. Everything I've already shown you is good. It, it, your correction wasn't so that, because you were doing something wrong and it's all bad and you should get under, you know, under the thumb. It's like there's a better, there's a really great way to live as a Christian. But now, a still more excellent way, like amplification here. Paul said, this is just, I was just blown away. A more excellent way. Let's just break the words down for a second. Paul says this. If I show something, underneath that word is, I'm going to expose or reveal or prove. Like there's a revelation. When I show this to you, it's going to be revealed to you. Still means to amplify or multiply because it's used to qualify the next word more, a still more. So I'm going to amplify something that's exceedingly, it's out there. And there's an intensity to, to this more. So it's, Still more, it's growing, right? It's like in the song when we start hitting the crescendos and the crescendo, and then the key changes and it goes up again and again. It's like that's still more. And then excellent in this context is beyond measure. It's preeminent. It's absolutely the very best. Paul says, I'm going to show you, I'm going to reveal an amplified, multiplied, exceedingly intense, beyond measure, preeminent, absolutely the best way. You think you know the way, but I'm going to show you a way that's really the way. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way to death. That's that shotgun thing, like oh, something good might happen. Like, well, does it, there's a lot of roads to hell, heaven, but uh, any one of them will get you there, right? First time I ever heard that phrase, you've heard that one, right? There's a lot of roads up, up to heaven, a lot of pathways. First time I ever heard it was at youth camp how much we love youth camp. I was at Christian youth camp and our senior pastor, the church I was attending, told us that. It started my 15, 20 year journey away from God. Because hey, there's lots of paths. I might as well go look for an easier one or a cooler one or whatever. So thank God I got brought back. Isaiah 55, eight says, my thoughts, God saying this, my thoughts are not your thoughts and neither are your ways my ways. And of course, Jesus clearly told us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Paul's now saying, we are people of the way, which is what the Christian church was called before Antioch. They were called people of the way. So being people of the way, let me make sure you are clear what way we're talking about here. <laughs> the more excellent way, the exceedingly abundantly above all things way. He's bringing inspiration and he's unpacking a mystery to them. As we have seen throughout scriptures, there are mysteries that are not told and then all of a sudden they are revealed. And Christ was revealing mysteries and Christ is the mystery revealed, if you will. And Paul is doing that here, right here. He's revealing one of the greatest mysteries of all of history. It's been concealed for generations, but now Paul's giving us a glimpse into that eternal reality. Remember? Hope is about the future reality. And Paul's saying, there's an eternal reality. If you call on Jesus as your Savior and Lord, there's a way that's so excellent. Later, he reminded us, we're going to see, we see dimly now, but then, then, now and then, right? Then we're going to see and know fully, just as we are fully known. Then. So, 
What is that more, still more excellent way? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. It's love. And that's where we're going to go with verses 4 through 7. Finally getting there. Finally, Pastor. Finally. This is what chapter 13 is all about all along. Well, I didn't want you to get distracted on this part because the rest of it was, there's a lot of there, right? There's a lot there. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, and it's not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way, and it's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do you know anybody like that? Well, could you take, do you know somebody who's a little bit like some part of that? <laughs> That's more like the Christian life, right? Hey, you know, last Tuesday when you said that, you were a little bit like that. Thanks. But I don't want to just live for morsels. Paul's saying that. Don't just live for the morsels, even though we're imperfect, you know. My old pastor, my former pastor used to say, we are imperfect people in the imperfect situations trying to do God's perfect will. So we don't always get it right. But don't discredit when we do. And Paul's words, so beautiful and, and simple and deep. I mean, it's, the reason why it gets read at, at weddings, it's perfect just like it is. You don't have to interpret it. I just got stuck with preaching about it. I got to say something, right? I was tempted actually just to read it and then be done. But these words, I think there's something so significant in Paul saying these words, writing these words to them and to us. Um, Paul knows that they're true. He wouldn't write them otherwise. Now you might say, well, how is it that Paul could be so clear and certain that these are the truth. And you might say, well, the whole Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and you're not wrong in saying that. Um, but I want to add to that this. Paul was the antithesis of every single thing that he wrote about what love is. Paul's testimony, his witness, was actually the opposite. His, Paul's basically giving the essence of his personal testimony when he writes these four verses, four through seven. See, because... The functional details of Paul's testimony, maybe you know this story from Acts. You know, um, Paul was the guy who held the coats so that Stephen could get stoned, and he's only encouraging. He probably organized the crowd. He, he's like putting it all together. He's, he's chief among the persecutors of the Christians, of the people of the way. He was on the road going someplace on a journey, on a mission. He had been commissioned for a commission that he went and applied for. He said, send me, I want to do this. I want to go get all those. I'm going to go door to door and pull them out of there, and we're going to get them all and stone them all. That's Paul. I'm going to go get every single one of these Christians because they're against what the church is about for real. I'm going to take care of that. And on that road, something else happened. That's his testimony, right? Hey, I met Jesus. I, got, I saw the light. Yeah, I got knocked to the ground and I was helpless. That's my testimony. That's what Paul says. I met the Lord. And then the Lord, later he says, Jesus himself made me an apostle. It's an amazing testimony. It's also, he says, I heard the audible voice of Jesus. Like I had a conversation with him. Even though I didn't know what to say because I was kind of like, he was accusing me of something. I was like, ah, God's accusing him. But my friends heard his voice too. So I know it's real. That's his testimony. Like, hey, I heard the, I heard the you know what, Permetric? I was walking down the road. I heard God's voice. And Verla was with me. And she heard it too. So you believe it now because two of us heard it, right? Yep, right? But very few people I know have, could actually convince me that they've heard God's voice. They could, but when two people say it, two witnesses, that's why in the Bible is always the two witnesses, right? Well, that's his testimony. But really what he's saying here today is not the outward things, the events. You could see that movie and read that book and, you know, all that stuff. He's talking about what happened inside. He's talking about his true witness. The thing that he really has to tell you about is that, is that I was proud. I was really proud. I was rude. Well, I was so rude, people were dying. I was neither patient nor kind. Neither one, not even close. I, I wanted my own way. I pursued my own way and did it for my own glory. I, I, he gives us a list later when he talks about I was a Rome, Roman and, a, and I, was in the, I was a rabbi and a Pharisee and you know, I, got all, he, I was all these things. 
I resented the success of others, Paul would say. I always looked for a way to gain an advantage. Always. Give me the prime, uh, you know, let me take the big lesson, take the big assignment. I used others to achieve my goals. Hey, I'll just hold the coats. You guys throw the rocks. Yeah. I always took the easy route that would give me the greatest reward of prestige and reputation and position and wealth. And then, and then, not only did God knock me off my high horse, he was merciful. God was gracious to me. God sent people and they showed me love. They, they led me when I was blind. I mean, I'm out on the road and it's a really bright sunny day and then a light brighter than that. And now I'm blind. But, but they led me and they took me to another guy who God had already spoken to on my behalf and said, when he gets here, here's what I want you to do. And that guy didn't condemn me or do, put me in jail or do anything to me. He, he spoke words of life to me. He, he brought me back. He, he restored me. He, he acted on God's behalf. He showed love to me. All these people showed love. And then when I went to start to witness and the people that I had been persecuting said, well, who's this Saul guy? What? Some of God's people actually vouched for me. They said, oh, no, no, we've heard him. We've seen it. No. So you could trust us. And so they exercised their own. They put their own reputations on the line for me. Love was displayed for me, he said. And when I was being, uh, I had to escape, they put the rope out the window and I, I could climb out the, the and everywhere I went, every ship I got on or every rock that was thrown to me, get me out of town. There was always Christian people helping me. God's love was poured out to me over and over and over again. I have lived in a way that I know what God's love is. That's what he's saying. That's my witness, he's saying. Because I'm different now because of what I've received. I'm different now because of that. And I have, I'm compelled to only tell you about that. All that was given to me, I'm compelled to give to you. That's what, God, that's what agape love is. And that's why Paul, in this whole context, is saying, you have all these spiritual gifts? Great. And I hope you exercise them, practice them, and don't be afraid of them, and use them for God's glory and to edify each other. But it's all got to be because of the love of God. It's, it's all got to be more than just your emotions. It can't just be the wonder without the worship and the word. It takes all three. It takes taking actions that fulfill a commitment. That's what love really is. God made a promise and he made a commitment and so did we. And so now our actions are fulfilling that. So how do we do that? Uh, just some practical advice for you. Um, maybe, maybe Pam, if you want to come and, and play under some of this and I have a few ideas for practical advice and then we're going to pray together. Because um, we have to untangle from some of the stuff that we've always done or the way we've always thought and sort of take up a little bit of the way God wants it done, right? So like, here's the first one. Don't be so easily offended. Right? Just don't be so easily offended. And don't be offended by the people that are offended. You know, the world is filled with all the people that are offended right now. Don't be offended by them. God loves them. And if your first reaction is, I'm offended, then you're going to turn away from them. Why not worry about why they're so offended? Why, worry about what got, went on in their lives. Worry about what, what led to them being in this spot. Were they abandoned? Why are they confused? Why, God has a concern for them, a compassionate concern. So don't be so offended. Don't give up on each other. Don't give up. Sometimes it's just easier in conflict to say, ah, and walk away. It doesn't solve it. And God doesn't do that. And God calls us to reconciliation, the ministry of it, in fact. And he gives us multiple scriptures about that. It'd be easy to say, oh, they made their bed. Let them lie in it, right? It'd be easier to say that than it would be, perhaps they have fallen and can't get up. Perhaps there's something going on there. We had uh, elderly neighbors for a number of years. Now we're getting closer to becoming that ourselves, right? But, but we had them for a number of years. And um, I, while I was away at work, Terry, more often, much more often than I, would be called on to come over to help the gentleman of the house who had fallen and couldn't get up. And his wife was unable to help him get back up. She did it multiple times. And uh, it, it was just acts of love. And it wasn't like, oh, there he goes again. What's wrong with him? Why doesn't he fix that? 
he needed to be helped out. Don't be so quick to assign motives to each other. I'm guilty of this one. It's really common in psychology, it's been studied in psychology, it's really common for each of us to assume the worst internal character flaw of the other person and that's why they made the decision they made. And then for our own situation to ascribe some external factor that caused it to happen. It's almost like the sun got in my eyes. I had a stone in my shoe. You know, it was raining on that day. I, you know, there's always some reason why I didn't keep my part of it. But I know, you know, you were just irresponsible. You're just lazy. You see what I'm saying? We almost stop. We have to stop doing that. We don't know what's going on. We don't know what put the homeless person there. We don't know. But do we assume the worst based on another encounter, perhaps? And we just don't know what, what caused that level of deception or, or desperation. What is the first thing you think of when you hear someone is accused of a crime? They must be guilty. So I could accuse anybody. Anybody could accuse me. Be careful about that. You know, I would dare say if we could take stock right now of each one of us in this room, of the things we've gone through, the struggles we've had, the, the battles, the, the ways that, that we either by our own just grit or trust in God or somebody sent by God to help us, what we've been through. I know some of your stories and some of you know some of mine. You know, we're all sitting next to a bunch of miracles in this room. Right? Each and every one of us. Well, people we don't even know yet. Then Lamont, you're sitting in the magic chair. In, in the, I think is, don't use the word magic, the anointed chair. The first, time, first Sunday we ever came to this church. Here, we'll do a demonstration. The first Sunday we ever came to visit this church, I came in and sat down. And uh, sitting right next to was Francis Buck. Anybody remember Francis? Okay, Francis, Francis Buck, who went to be with the Lord when she was about 95 or something. But she was a longtime member. She sat there and we did the usual thing, did all the worship and then greet everybody. She just stands up, here stand up. Stands up and she takes my two hands and she goes, we've been praying for you to come sit here in this chair and be with us. Where else could I go to church? <laughs> but it was so sincere. That was sincere, though, right? I've been, we've been praying for you, too. It was just uh, this moment of pure giving, not one of, I mean, here I hear visitors in the second row, too, right? Like, because there was no place else that says, like, oh, yeah, here we go. I've got to go to the second row. You know, right there, a pastor can see everything, right? So, but she just took me by the hand and said, so sincerely, I knew it was real. I mean, Frances, she didn't pull punches on anything. And, and she was fun-loving as well, right? But I mean, right in that moment, I thought, this church is tuned into God. The Holy Spirit, speaking through that lovely saint, said to me, you're welcome, you're wanted, you're valuable, you're important. You know, and the rest, as they might say, is history, right? Look at me now, right? I mean, <laughs> right? A lot has happened since then, but that moment, because we were looking, we were, we were the, as many of you were too, right? Where, where are we going to go to? How can we find a church that's about word, worship, and wonder? How can, and right in that moment, I was shown the love of God in such a compassionate way, such a beautiful, tender, no great display, but God's spirit between us. It was amazing. If you only knew, if each of you only knew the miracle that you're sitting next to. Well, it's God that does the miracles and brings us through. So, let me just ask you to stand together now. We're going to pray. I'm just going to try to pray a blessing over you. I'm going to make an invitation too, but I, I hope that today was encouraging. Um, I hope that you heard one or two things maybe that you could walk away from. I really hope you'll take some time to go back in and read and study this these verses again yourself. There's a very powerful, pivotal word that Paul is bringing, that love, like, he, like everything else he's talking about, he's basically saying, if you don't have this kind of love, you might as well hang it up. But you can have this kind of love. <laughs> it's not impossible, it's right there. So, if you, if you feel as if maybe you've been a little bit delinquent on this or maybe you just want to take the next step or maybe 
you are easily offended or you, you have given up on some situation, but you want to see what you can do to make that right. Um, if you want to come for prayer, we'll be here, here in the front praying, but I just want to pray a blessing over all of us too. I think, you know, this is, a, this is like the kid on the jungle gym. Like, I want to go bar to bar to bar. Like, I got to let go of the one behind me in order to grab a hold of the one in front of me. And so whatever has been going on in my life, whatever has been holding me back, whatever attachment I have back here, I got to let go of that and take hold of Jesus and just trust. You swing out there and you just trust you're going to grab the next one and the next one. And you just go on with God. So let's pray it. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you, that God, you put Jesus, who is the head of all in the entire universe, as the head of this body. So God, we pray this day, this moment, that your love would flow freely. That God, we have experienced, each one of us have a testimony. We have received your love and our life is improved because of your love. We have been set free because of your love. We claim it now and we receive it now and we proclaim and commit ourselves to have a lifestyle of faith, to have a boldness of hope, and to be fearless in our love and be expressive in a small way of taking a hand and saying, I'm praying for you, and in a big way of saying, right is right and wrong is wrong. God, by your, your, the power of your spirit and, and inspired by your love, we proclaim that we will go forward this day on and we will welcome the active usefulness and utilization of your gifts in this church to build us stronger and also to send us further. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.